The West Wing Weekly is sponsored by Birch Eyes. Birch Eyes is a pretty special company that we wanted to tell you about. They're an outsourced sales and marketing firm that gives either existing or startup companies access to their sales team and their relationships around the country for a low monthly fee. But the thing that makes them special is what they do with the money they earn. The founder, Jason Birch, is a big West Wing fan, and like so many of us, he wanted to do something to improve the world. Birch Eyes was created specifically so that all the profits from the company get poured into charity. How cool is that? It's pretty awesome. And the charity that they support is Project Meet Me Halfway, an organization whose mission is to help young adults transitioning out of the foster care system. So instead of enriching shareholders, Birch Eyes zeroes out its profits and gives them to Project Meet Me Halfway. So if you're a business owner who needs a top-notch sales team, check out Birch Eyes. And if you're someone who just wants to learn more about the mission and see how you can help yourself, go to thegivingbusiness.com. That's thegivingbusiness.com from Birch Eyes. The West Wing Weekly is sponsored by ZipRecruiter. Finding qualified employees can be very difficult, Rishi. We know this. We do. I mean, we have just the right people, but it's not always easy to find just the right people. But ZipRecruiter makes it a heck of a lot easier. They do this by sending your job to over 100 of the web's leading job boards, but they don't stop there. No, they have some powerful matching technology. They're able to scan thousands and thousands of resumes to find the right people with the right experience for the job you're posting and invite them to apply to your job. You don't need to have Josh Lyman waiting in the room trying to find out if Joe Quincy's a Republican. ZipRecruiter is so effective that 80% of employers who post on there get a quality candidate through the site within the first day. It's no wonder that ZipRecruiter is the highest rated hiring site in America. That makes a lot of sense. Right now, our listeners can try ZipRecruiter for free. That's free at ZipRecruiter.com slash West Wing. That's ZipRecruiter.com slash W-E-S-T-W-I-N-G, West Wing. ZipRecruiter, the smartest way to hire. Hey there, Josh here. Before we start, just a warning. We had some technical issues with the audio file from my side of this conversation, so the recording will sound a bit lo-fi. Enjoy. You're listening to The West Wing Weekly. I'm Rishi K. Sherway. And I'm Joshua Molina. And today we're talking about episode 12 from season five. It's called Slow Newsday. It was written by Eli Addy. It was directed by Julie Hebert. And it first aired on February 4th in the year 2004. I'm going to read the uh, Warner Brothers official synopsis for this episode. Toby convinces Bartlett to secretly sanction his solo attempt to make history by reforming Social Security, but Toby's efforts to recruit a Republican senator and a Democratic cohort are publicly divulged, forcing the administration to back down while Josh and Leo are left clueless and furious. Meanwhile, an equally unaware CJ parries with a reporter who is ready to print all the backstage details. Also, the female staffers complain to Josh about a new employee, a mysterious, seductively dressed woman assigned to Toby. Just split infinitive in there, but otherwise fairly <laughs> comprehensive synopsis. Although I don't know about any female staffers actually complaining to Josh. Nor do I remember that. Maybe our special guest can enlighten that. Yeah. Joining us for this episode is one of our favorite guests, which is why we ask him back all the time, Eli Addy. A great pleasure to be here. Thanks, Eli. Let's just start right here. Do you know something about why this little bit about Rena, the female staffers complaining to Josh, is in this Warner Brothers official synopsis? Yeah, I do. So this episode of The West Wing 
when the very first director's cut was delivered to the producers of the show, including myself, it was something like 14 minutes long. And uh, maybe that speaks to the complexity and possible insanity of trying to squeeze reforming Social Security into an hour of primetime television. But it's funny, watching the episode... Oh, you mean it was 14 minutes too long? 14 minutes too long. I'm so sorry. Like 14 minutes over. Exactly right. Got it. So watching it, there were a few things that probably only I noticed that were half-sentence references to scenes that weren't in the show. Uh, One of them is Josh actually saying to, I think to CJ, What am I, the White House Complaint Center? And that was because there was a scene where he comes in in the morning, and I can talk about the Rena character and at least my memory of what that was and where that came from and the whole idea of it, but he comes in in the morning and several of the female assistants on the show, Ginger, some of the other ones, were camped out in Josh's office, and they were all Hmm. kind of in a frenzy about this woman, Rena, and the way she dressed and how she looked so different than everybody. So that scene, I guess NBC must have seen the nine-hour director's cut <laughs> and they put it in the recap. That's interesting. That also explains to me something that seemed a little abrupt, which is that Josh sends Donna to spy on what Toby's up to, and he tells her, go tell Rena she's got to dress differently. And with the absence of what you've now described, it yes. struck me as, kind of harsh and a little bit abrupt, like that's what she's that's gonna right. go have a bring right. up. And in fact, in the original script and in the cut, the sort of, you know, 47 hour cut, it'll get longer each time I mention it. Uh, <laughs> Donna was also complaining to Josh about her. And so it wasn't to- it wasn't as harsh and groundless as it seems, I think, in the actual finished version. I'm glad that we didn't end up actually seeing Donna as one of the people specifically complaining about her, so that when we do have that scene between the two of them, it feels more like, well, maybe maybe some of Rena's fears were founded, but then it lets Donna stay in kind of a softer light, which I appreciate. I was going to say, also, there are two great reversals in that scene between Donna and Rena. Yeah, One are. being that she comes saying, we need to talk about uh, clothes makeup. and makeup. And Rena says, sure, if you ever want me to teach you how to put on makeup, I'd be happy to. Which I thought it was very funny. That's uh, a great it reminded me. Turn. It reminded me of uh, Princess Bride when um, he's just, surrender. You mean you wish to surrender to me? But I will accept. Well, interestingly, I, that's fantastic. I can tell you what that was based on in my mind, which was an article I had read about Virginia Kelly, Bill Clinton's mother, who uh, I think passed away in the middle of Bill Clinton's presidency. Uh, but she was this kind of uh, racetrack going, Elvis loving, you know, Arkansas, you know, fiery Arkansas woman who I think wore makeup about an inch and a half thick. Uh, and I remember reading an article about how when Hillary Clinton was first getting to know her and first dating Bill Clinton, and she probably wore what we would all consider, you know, a sort of a moderate amount of makeup, that uh, Clinton's mom sat her down one day and basically said, do you want me to teach you how to put on makeup? Sort of assuming that if you didn't take it off with a chisel every night, that that was not a choice. (laughs) So that stuck with me for some reason. I I love that. Yeah, the reversal in that scene is just Donna's decision to abandon the mission barely after it started, realizing that it's just not right what she's doing, and that really the best advice she could give to Rena is don't let anybody ever see what it is you're working on. I I love that. That's right. Yeah, that was the idea. Yeah, she tries to play the deception in this spirit of collegiality, 
and then decides to actually tack towards collegiality and be like, here's what I would actually tell you as someone who's in your position. This is, you know, you should keep doing what you're doing. It's a funny thing. I, I'm glad looking back, I, I took a glance at the script this morning to sort of see those scenes that were cut. And I'm, I'm actually really on another level glad that that scene was cut because it seems so ancient now. The idea of a group of young women having a sort of an, uh, an aversion to another young woman sort of based on her appearance. And to some degree, that was the, con- the conception of this uh, Rena character, which was something that came out of the writer's room in this period on the show. I can't remember. Was this her first episode on the show? No, I think third, maybe. Because I know that the idea, which was something that was a bit of a recurring idea in season five that we sort of abandoned by season six, was can we introduce into this show characters from a different class background, characters who will not be one of the group and sort of provoke the group. And, and I think in Rena's case also be, you know, an expositional device. She doesn't know all about government. Things can be explained to her. And, you know, my view it sort of over time was that, you know, the West Wing tended to reject those characters like they were foreign organisms, mm-hmm. you know, like an organ transplant that didn't take, which is no dishonor to the actors who played them. But it was, you know, the idea was this is going to be this sort of more working class background woman who just doesn't dress like a sophisticated, you know, Ivy League person. I'm not even really sure her outfit completely sold that idea. But uh, that's really interesting. We talked about when she first appeared during the government shutdown, that maybe she was a ghost who had been inhabiting the White House, but nobody had seen her before. (laughs) And then she she only makes herself visible, you know, by force of will here and there. And, um, and I thought, oh, in this episode, we realize she doesn't actually realize that she's a ghost. Nobody here talks to me. And and she (laughs) thinks it's because they don't like me, but it's actually because most of the time people don't see her. That's hilarious. I mean, I, I, where I thought where I'm gl- I thought you were going, and I'm glad you didn't go with that. Was you thought she was an intern appearing during the government shutdown, and we all know that that happened once in real life, and it didn't work out very well. A lot of West Wing fans think that she's supposed to allude to um, Monica Lewinsky. Well, that, yeah, that absolutely wasn't the case. But but it is true that um, when I was working in the Clinton White House, there was a deputy chief of staff whose name was Evelyn Lieberman, who used to um, pull young women aside if she thought they were dressed a little too provocatively. And actually, she turned out to be one of the people in that White House who was trying to keep Monica Lewinsky away from sort of the Oval Office area, you know, the whole suite of offices that included that. So that may have been a little bit of her thinking. It's hard to say. But at the time when I was working there, I just saw it as a, as kind of there's a sense of propriety here. And I had a dear friend working in the White House at that time, a young woman who just was a bit of a New York hipster and wore almost like black lipstick and things like that. And she would often get pulled into a side room and told, Mm-mm, you know, <laughs> get rid of that. Not because it was too sexy, but because it just didn't fit the tone of the place. Well, one of the vestiges of that excised plot is that we do come upon Rena in the, uh, I guess, kind of like bullpen outside Toby's office, and she's clearly distressed, and in fact, she's crying. And so we get a great moment of Toby walking right by her after clocking the fact that she's super distressed, <laughs> then turning back, and we think, oh, okay, he can't help himself. But then we find out that he's realized that her distress is of value and the fact that she's alienated from everyone else and makes her the perfect person to help him for this top secret project. I thought that was a fantastic illumination of Toby's character. 
character. Yeah, yeah. Ghosts are good spies. Yeah, and I always and still, you know, love Toby and love his his curmudgeonliness. And this was def. I, when I think when I look back on this episode, this was probably when I really first became good friends with Richard. You know, we spent a lot of time together, and this definitely is a deep dive into Toby's uh, darker and lighter nature in some ways. I promise this will be now the last that I will say about Rena the Ghost. Um, you can keep. I mean, why? In the series. Don't limit yourself, you know. <laughs> but I did want to, I, I realized after I was watching this episode and thinking about Rena and her predicament that people don't know she's a ghost. And I couldn't believe that I hadn't thought about this earlier, but I wanted to give a shout out to our editor, Margaret Miller, who wrote a delightful children's book in 2012 called My First Ghost all about what it's like to have a ghost in your house and, you know, the the joys of taking care of a ghost. Um, it's a really huh. fantastic book. And they actually released a uh, trailer for it, a video that goes along with the book when it came out. And I just want to play it because I think if you hear it, this is a pretty great theme song for Rena. The ghost friend is a close friend, an invisible friend. Invisible, invisible friend. friend. A ghost friend is a close friend, an irresistible friend. An unkissable friend. So Unkissable friend, walking lawsuit. We just need to add a line about uh, ghosts being able to work during a government shutdown. I mean, <laughs> exactly. I mean, I think this is the music, you know, during the title sequence of the Rena spinoff while she's applying foundation with a paint roller to her face. <laughs> I think that's a, that would be a delightful sequence. Front of her and as she puts on more makeup, she becomes invisible. Visible. That's oh, true. Oh, it could be visible. Oh, it could be that we see nothing. We just see a paint roller sort of go through the frame and then slowly, <laughs> like the uh, Invisible Man. Um, Eli, you mentioned the expository possibilities by having Rena, And I realized this is also, we've been talking a lot about the evolution of Donna. And now she's been in the White House for so long. And we spoke to Janelle last episode about how realistically... At this point, Donna would have probably been promoted to some other position. But in any case, she knows so much, it's impossible to do sort of what was the uh, right. the, the move in the first season, the Teladonna, you know, where, where Josh would explain some function of government or, or some issue to her. And so now we have a Tellerina. That's right. And, 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 and you know, another thing about this episode, looking through the 57,000 page original script, is that um, <laughs> Ryan, the character Ryan, the intern, played by Jesse Bradford, he's in the script. I assume, I can't quite remember now, we, I think we must have shot a bunch of scenes with him, and he was playing that role too. And this is a funny challenge, I think, of long-running TV shows always, which is that you've got people... You want to keep them frozen in place to some degree because you've got this delightful dynamic and Josh, you know, and Donna, it's sort of this, you know, student-teacher relationship that's also many other things. But yeah, that was a challenge. And I think in the John Wells era of the show, and particularly this season, there was a lot of conversation about, can we take a step back? Are there some things we can do that may change things up a bit, advance things in some way? play a little more into the reality, you know, and absolutely that was, that was the purpose here. It's funny because I think those storylines, things like census sampling in, I guess, the first season of the show and, and, you know, the superconducting super collider and some of the wonkier, you know, more uh, expository heavy storylines probably were the spiritual godfathers of, of this whole episode. <laughs> Can we tackle something? 
when you mentioned this mammoth original script and the episode coming in at 14 minutes too long, the last note that I took watching the episode was, too bad this wasn't a multi-episode arc. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So why wasn't yeah. it? Well, it's an interesting question. It probably, in retrospect, should have been, and certainly could have been, and, and you know, the script wasn't that long. It wasn't, wasn't really any longer page-wise than a typical episode. I think part of the reason the cut came in so long was there were so many scenes where it's kind of Richard wallowing in some moment and great stuff you didn't want to cut. But, you know, the West Wing, I think, was always, up to this point, trying to be a closed-end, satisfying hour. There were so few times in the Aaron years when things would really be multi-arc stories with cliffhangers, and the idea was a satisfying little play every week. And um, the genesis of this idea, there was a joke that went back to Aaron's days on the show where, you know, just because of the nature of the sorts of stories that we were telling on the show, we used to joke in the writer's room, you know, often with Aaron there, you know, Bartlett has no accomplishments. Like, we, nobody could really name things he did as president because you're not really seeing him pass bills or sign bills. You're not really seeing him issue a lot of executive orders. It's much more behind the scenes and sort of character-focused stories. So there'd be times when we'd need to list accomplishments in a, in a speech of Bartlett's or something where we'd be kind of scrambling <laughs> to make things up. So we were always wanting to do something, even before this season, an episode where we do something significant. And we talked a lot in season five about the West Wing, what was the core of this show that we were sort of inheriting from its creator, right? And, and one of the big aspects of it was wish fulfillment. So this became a conversation about can we do something on the show that hasn't been done in real life? And what would that look like? And uh, I don't know who suggested social security form. It was definitely not my idea. It might have been Lawrence's idea. But One of the just, older writers, yeah. Probably yeah exactly. <laughs> exactly right. Somebody for whom it really was going to hit home that year. No, just kidding. We love Lawrence. But, but, but uh, it became more, I think, in the wake of the show that did a storyline on primetime television about census sampling, I think the dryness and the sort of undramatic nature of social security reform was, I think, what attracted us to it and me to it. Could you actually wring drama out of something so sort of, uh, you know, that even would put even accountants to sleep, you know, and and any accountants who watch the episode can tell us whether it was successful. It's probably not for me to say. Yeah, I thought that maybe one of the reasons why it wasn't a a multi-episode arc was because we'd had a few of those already. I mean, really, the first two episodes of the season are really kind of a two-parter, and it's a really long arc even after that as the uh, aftermath of Zoe's kidnapping was explored. And then we also really recently had kind of a two-parter with the shutdown. That's true. That's very true. So I thought maybe that's why you couldn't do it again so soon. Interestingly to me, in, in part of the desire to in crafting this episode, you wanted to create some sort of legacy and an achievement for Bartlett. And you did it ironically in a way where he couldn't point to it. You could, as producers of the show, here's something he did, but you, you robbed him of being able to point right. to his own legacy. That's you true. Yeah, you didn't actually solve your problem of when he, when he gets to point. list the, his accomplishments in a speech. It's not like you get to scramble any less because he still can't mention yeah. this one in a speech. You can point to them. He can't. <laughs> Okay, let's go back to the beginning of the, the episode and start from the top. Actually, let's start before the episode starts. Eli, this is a question. I can't believe that we haven't uh, tried to answer this previously on the West Wing Weekly. Who decides what scenes are played in the previously on the West Wing? Oh, 
That's a very good question. I can tell you that, you know, it was probably John Wells because I don't remember having any conversation about that. I don't know. I, I, I don't remember having any personal involvement with that. But what I can tell you is all you're seeing in the previously on from this episode is a little bit of a scene, I believe, it's just a little bit of a scene from my previous episode, Constituency of One, and it's a scene, am I right about that? It's a scene between Toby and Leo that in my mind was the genesis of this idea in another way, which is that there's this scene where where Toby, who's being asked to kind of uh, handle this message calendar, and, and that's the thing that kind of gets Will to leave and go work for the vice president, which of course also features in this episode, but but it, it was Toby's frustration that we weren't doing grand historic things. And I know that um, when we were talking about doing an episode that was this kind of impossible thing that hadn't been done in the real world, and I guess we settled on social security reform, I just kind of went off and, and then did an outline. And it was pretty much just my choice to make it Toby. And it felt like based on that previous scene, this was what was on his mind and he'd be the guy to swing for this ridiculously high fence. So I, I can't recall who made that decision, but I can say that that's the exact right scene to tee up this episode. Yeah, for sure. I wasn't sure if it was something like the synopsis where, you know, you deliver your episode and then someone in a marketing department at the studio is the person who tacks that on, or if it's something that gets delivered along with the edit, you know, with, with the final cut of the show, because there are times very rarely there are actually times where the previously on has a sort of creative function, you know, even tying in to the very beginning, to the, you know, the frontal of the, uh, the episode. Yeah, it's definitely not something done by marketing because they don't have all the footage, you know, handy right. the way that you would in your own sort of edit room. Uh, right. So it's always something done by the show, but I just can't remember how it worked. But yeah, you know, I do really think of that scene as the kernel of this whole idea, which is here's a guy... Toby, who's incredibly frustrated that because of Zoe's kidnapping, because of just the way Washington works, here we are. It's the second term. Time is running out. And, you know, when are we going to swing for the fences? Can we swing for the fences? And, and this was absolutely the way a lot of people felt when I worked in the White House in Clinton's second term, which was this feeling of sometimes ham-handedly trying to grab for legacy. It was something people thought about a lot because for the president, and he has some allusions to it also in this episode, but that's his last campaign, you know, and, and, and I remember all these meetings that were held, you know, without Bill Clinton and probably some with Bill Clinton that were really about legacy without using that word, you know, sort of pretending there was some other pretext for a meeting, but it was really like, is there a side of Mount Rushmore and can we climb up there and get his face on there? You know, it all became about that. Yeah, I like that that idea of legacy is something that's been kind of permeating the last few episodes in the stormy present, you know, the death of President Lasseter, the president's getting ready for his presidential portrait. Um, Legacy has been kind of, you know, in the background of a lot of these episodes, and, and then it comes out more in the foreground here. So that's really cool. The episode starts here, we get a it starts off with rain and Toby is not sleeping at 2.47 in the morning and just sighs and apparently just completely gives up on the effort to sleep and gets up and goes to work, which I related to very much. Yeah, and I think the intention there, which it can simply be that and that works fine, but it was that, I don't know if this played or if you felt this, but the idea was that he was 
lying in bed stewing about something. And yeah. he went to work to, to address that thing. But uh, I just figured he was always doing about something. And uh, I think that's right. <laughs> I think that's right. But and that works. But but at, watching it, you're right. I don't see, you know, the glimmer of Social Security form in his open eyes. <laughs> <laughs> he also expects no less from anyone else. He has no hesitation in waking up Charlie and Josh. <laughs> <laughs> that's true. That's true. He wakes, wakes up Charlie to steal the opportunity to wake up the president from him. Yeah, he tells him to sleep in. He's like, yeah. I'm woken you up. <laughs> well, you just woke me. <laughs> yes, that was been well performed by Richard. <laughs> the cold open is, uh, is very visual. I like how you wrote it. There are a lot of great visual moments. There's uh, some fantastic just crossing of screen, two crosses that Toby does in front of a completely stoic security guard who's sitting at a desk as Toby goes first uh, cross the screen one way, then the other to get uh, some documents. I was thinking about people who can sleep with their eyes open, and I figured that security guard must be one because he does not move. <laughs> I remember as a kid, I was at my cousin's house, and my eldest cousin, Rachel, had just gotten home from some sort of trip, and my uncle came down and said, my God, she's sleeping, standing up with her eyes open. And my other cousin and I raced upstairs to see her because <laughs> we thought she actually was. We're like, That's hilarious. And then she became a security guard in the White House lobby. Yeah, but she's invisible. <laughs> I love that when Toby calls up Josh, though he's barely coherent, he still definitely knows Gaines's cash on hand number off the top of yeah. his head. I mean, you know, that's the kind of superpower that like we've come to expect and love in this well, show. Well, and I think that's I think that's realistic. You know, if you look at, you know, Josh you know, even though in title he's the deputy chief of staff, I think we've also, you know, played him in the show generally as the political director and the guy who tracks these things. And especially money in politics, that's, I'm sure had you woken up Rahm Emanuel in the middle of the night, he would, he would have, uh, it would have been down to the penny. Really? You could just pick a senator and he'd know it. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. So, you know, some of it is, is the superpower, but some of it is, this is, their, this is the currency of the currency realm. The game. And, you know, it is, there is a lot of tea leaf reading of that kind, you know. So if you're Josh, you're probably studying those numbers. I liked also the final moment of the cold open gave me just a throb of love for the West Wing altogether. We call it the bomb swell, the final line or moment that leads into the opening credits. And the idea that you could have a television show where that bomb swell moment is a character saying, I think I know how we can save Social Security. Because <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> it, it works. It works in this context. And it just gave me a surge of love for the whole endeavor that is. The I'm West so glad West. to hear that. You know, it's, it's funny because... For me, looking back on this episode, it's hard for me to say, even just rewatching it, it's hard for me to say if it works. You know, it's, it's so odd. There definitely has never been another TV show that's aired an episode in prime time about Social Security reform. It, it was taken on as a kind of a bizarrely audacious, you know, can we top census sampling as a storyline? And, um, <laughs> you know, and that was the exercise. And, you know, I find myself looking at it thinking like, is this television? And here's how Toby puts it, the problem, when he finally does speak to the president. Mr. President, life expectancy is rising. The biggest generation ever is retiring, and we don't have the money. Every year we wait means we have to cut deeper, take away more, till Social Security is not enough to live on, till retirement's a one-way ticket to a flop house. 
what I lo- love about this episode is it made me basically have to put myself through a mini crash course in social security so just to keep up with what was happening. I spoke to a woman named Nancy Altman, who heads the nonprofit Social Security Works. She was appointed by Nancy Pelosi to be um, part of the seven-member Social Security Advisory Board. And, oh, wow. um, and we had a great conversation, and I want to play a little bit of it here. Would you mind introducing yourself? My name is Nancy Altman. I'm president of Social Security Works, and I chair a very broad-based, diverse coalition on Social Security. Awesome. So let's just get right into it. What did you think of this episode? I thought it was a great period piece. Hmm. I mean, it really shows how the Democratic Party has shifted. Oh, that's interesting. How would you characterize the Democratic Party's position on Social Security before that time, before the 90s and the early 2000s? Now, of course, Social Security was the creation of the New Deal. It was Franklin Roosevelt's program, Democratic Congress. Democrats were always very strong supporters of the program, you know, through the 30s, 40s, 50s, 60s, 70s. And then there started to be a change. When Ronald Reagan talked about government's not the solution, it's the problem, Mm. it really shifted a lot of, of framing. And starting really with Bill Clinton and sort of the the new Dems, there was an attempt to say, you know, the era of big government's over. Even right. though, of course, the interesting thing about the episode is that the plan that, you know, that sort of they came to at the end, where they just gave a sentence or two about it, was a plan that Clinton and Gingrich were working on in 1998, very similar, almost the same plan. And you know what caused that to fall apart? Monica Lewinsky, right? Uh, because they started that. And so those of us who were consistently saying, no, we can't cut this program, we should be expanding this program, really sort of secretly say, you know, hooray for Lewinsky, because she helped save Social Security. Huh. That's interesting. <laughs> I had always heard about that episode as sort of a this tragic moment, you know, for bipartisanship, because Newt Gingrich felt that he now couldn't stand side by side with President Clinton because he was toxic because of this this affair. And so the whole thing crumbled. But for you, it was actually, uh, this was a positive outcome. Oh, definitely. I mean, compromise is fine, but it's also very important to have values and principles. And the thing that makes Social Security such an interesting issue is that the American people, as polarized as they are on lots of issues, are completely united on Social Security. You find with their poll after poll after poll shows Tea Partiers agree with union members, Republicans, Democrats, independents. The elites don't. And the elites in Washington, it used to be Democratic and Republican elites, and now it's more just the Republican elites that were saying, no, no, we've got to save the program. We need to have a bipartisan solution. We have to cut back. The American people overwhelmingly do not want to cut this program. And so, and this is another piece that goes into the um, the storyline of the show. One of the things that really made me laugh as I watched it, I did not see Toby as a hero in this, but what made me laugh when I watched it again in preparation for our discussion was that Toby got the last word on several scenes, Mm -hmm. but I actually think the character that was arguing with him had the better argument. And in fact, one of them, there was a scene where Toby is is talking to the Wall Street Journal reporter who's, you know, hot on the trail of this and, you know, discovers what's going on. And Toby's trying to have him kill the story. How about the arrogance of trying to reform a $400 billion program by manhandling senators behind closed doors with no public debate? 
I mean, I think that's the right thing. And if you do what the American people want, which I think is where the Democrats are now, which is expanding these benefits and getting the wealthy to pay their fair share, we won't see action yet because obviously when Democrats have to have the White House and so forth. But we're going to see movement next January on open hearings about what do we do about Social Security. So when Toby says, I'm going to save Social Security, to you, you didn't hear it as saving Social Security. No, I heard it the way you talk about fixing Social Security, you know, the way you fix a, fix a dog or something. The line we use, but I think it's the accurate line, is that Social Security is a solution, that it's it doesn't need saving. It's a response to a looming retirement income crisis we're facing. It's a response to really immoral levels of income and wealth inequality. And my attitude is what we should be doing today is expand Social Security, fight for 15, increase the minimum wage, and strengthen workers' ability to collectively bargain. So no, the mindset, the mainstream thinking in the 1990s, which is still the rhetoric of the Republicans, is we've got to fix the program, we've got to save the program, it's this terrible problem. And what I think Democrats have realized is that Social Security doesn't need to be saved. It's a solution. And so it needs to be expanded. It's wise policy and winning politics to expand it. It's a very interesting exercise to look at the 2012 Democratic and Republican presidential planks on Social Security as their platform and the 2016. Because the 2012 sounds just like your episode and is not that different. They both talk about bipartisan solutions. They talk about the need for saving, you know, those exactly what your episode was talking about. Compromise. Compromise. Bipartisan. You know, let's come together. And the 2016 was we've got to expand Social Security We've got to open field offices. You know, we have to give more money for the administration. And the Republican one continued to be, we've got to save this program. So the parties have now diverged. And I think the Democrats, not only have they returned to their roots, which was, you know, as I say, the 1930s, 40s, 50s, 60s, but they've also, the American people agree with the Democrats. And so it's an issue where the rank and file Republicans do not agree with their elected leaders. Hmm. And how do you convince them then, if not to follow the will of their constituents, how do you convince them that your position is right? Because I think the nature of my understanding of the political process is that the only way things move forward is through compromise. Well, it depends what the issue is. When the American people are are sharply divided, you have to have compromise. But if 60, 70, 80 percent of the American people agree with one position, which I think, which the polling all shows, then you do what the Democrats are planning to do. Next January, you hold hearings. If you have the House, you force votes. Republicans would then have to either say, we're going to vote against what's extremely popular, or we're going to go along, or we're going to have an alternative, and you make it an election issue. If you do it behind closed doors, you have to compromise. But if you do it out in the open, and the American people are paying attention, and in fact, one of the another scene I loved and I, I actually laughed about, and this actually involved Will, yeah. where he and Josh are talking about, you know, going to Gaines's district and putting out a, a cop and saying, right. you know, because he couldn't raise anybody. And I laughed because running on privatizing Social Security, the Koch brothers love it. There was another billionaire who passed away recently, but at, at that time, he was putting in literally a billion dollars of his own money. Pete Peterson was doing it. If you want to run, I mean, I thought what it would have been a better 
sort of image was having 90-year-olds, you know, waiting tables on the fundraiser. You know, it's sort of this idea of work till you die. I mean, the idea of putting out a cup for privatizing Social Security, Wall Street loves privatizing Social Security because there's a lot of money to be made there. So the polling supports that the majority of Americans, regardless of party, support expanding Social Security. And the expansion of Social Security, as I understand it, is um, mainly going to be funded through, uh, or at least the proposal, is that it'll be by removing the salary cap that's currently on Social Security, right? The money that's deducted from your paycheck is a Social Security contribution. That covers 75 to 80% of Social Security's revenue. Um, okay. Now, the way that that's structured is it's 6.2% of your wages on your first dollar, you know, starting if you're a minimum wage worker, it's 6.2% of every dollar you earn if you're 16 years old, you know, earning a summer job, it's 6.2% up to a maximum, which is goes up every year, but it's $128,400. That covers 94% of the American people make under that amount. So they get withholding all year long. They don't even know that there's a maximum. But, you know, Bill Gates, I mean, we joke he, you know, he stops contributing to Social Security probably by his coffee break on January 1, because once he earns $128,400, he doesn't pay anything more into Social Security. He's done for the year. Right. You know, Congress, you know, it's probably like March or something. So one of the proposals is to eliminate that and say, okay, Bill Gates, pay all year long the way everybody else does. So that's in every expansion bill is to eliminate or modify what's called the cap. Right. I mean, it's really structured. I didn't realize that. that is a, it's structured as a regressive tax. Exactly. And in fact, the proposals to eliminate the cap or change, there are a variety of proposals that have been put forward. If it ended up being that the cap was removed, so it was just a, a proportional tax for everyone, but it didn't go to the level of, you know, being a progressive tax or, or having a additional income from estate taxes or something like that. Would that feel like a compromise, even though it was still the expansion? No, of no, that would be great. I mean, the thing that was interesting, and, and again, this I laugh about the episode because the great compromise they came up with at the end of the episode, mm -hmm. and it was the compromise, as I say, that was quite close to what Clinton and Gingrich were talking about was raising the retirement age. And th in fact, that's that was another episode where Toby is talking to um, the Senator um, Brainerd and she's saying, no, no, don't raise the retirement age. And he said, no, everything has to be on the table. And she said, tell that to the sheet metal worker whose tendons are shot by 55. Having and I thought, security. yeah, she's right, even though he got the last word. Yeah. But no, I think benefits are too low. So I absolutely would not compromise on reducing benefits by a penny. But in terms of how it's funded, to me, that's a political question. How do people think is the fairest way to spread the costs? Nancy, thank you so much for talking to us about how <laughs> the show correctly depicted Toby's now outdated stance on what a Democrat might do when it comes to trying to save Social Security. You have a new book out this month called The Truth About Social Security. And um, we'll put a link to it up on the website so people can read more about them for themselves. Oh. That would be fantastic. And if I can, this is sort of a personal thing. Before we leave, I was thinking about it, not to bring in a sad note, but I actually have an interesting kind of personal connection to the West Wing. Oh, really? And that is my sister, who unfortunately in 2006 passed away from cancer, was a huge fan of the West Wing. 
Her daughter then lived and still lives in Los Angeles and knew one of the producers. Oh, really? And in your very last episode, which was, you know, May of 2006, right. the writers wrote in her name as a character, just this kind of a tribute. Her name was Janet Spragans. Nobody else would know, but all of us were just, you know, because it was only a few months after she passed away, and it, I'm, I'm tearing up thinking about it. So I, we love the West Wing, <laughs> and I'm so glad you guys are doing this podcast. It is just fantastic. Thank you so much. That's awesome. I'm excited to listen for her name in the episode. Excellent. Thank you. Bye now. Now we're going to take a quick break. The West Wing Weekly is sponsored by Article. Articles inspired by mid-century modern and Scandinavian simplicity. They're an online-only furniture company that offers beautiful furniture. Why do they sell online exclusively? Because price matters, and no retail stores means that they don't have to pay expensive rent and charge you more. You've heard me talk about how much I love my chicha alpaca throw. Yeah, I have. I love it. It's a really lovely blanket that is comfortable, but it's also a design statement. Because like all of the article stuff, it looks great in my living room. You know that of an evening, I like to expound on my bomba poofs. I do know that. They are gorgeous. You can sit on them. You can sit on another chair, put your feet up on them. You can use them as a little table. And here's your chance to save $50 off of a purchase of $100 or more. Just go to article.com slash West Wing, and then your discount will be applied to your purchase. Once again, that's article.com slash West Wing. Go to article.com and check out the goods. Chicha. Poof. The West Wing Weekly is sponsored by Lightstream. If you're thinking about saving money this summer, why not start by paying less interest on your credit card balances? Refinance with a credit card consolidation loan from Lightstream. Why not? It's an easy way to save hundreds to thousands of dollars and to lower your interest rate. Lightstream offers credit card consolidation loans from 5.89% APR with AutoPay. That's lower than the average credit card interest rate of over 18% APR. And you could get your funds as soon as the day you apply. Lightstream believes that people with good credit deserve a great interest rate and no fees. Say goodbye to high interest credit cards this summer and start saving. Bye. And start saving with Lightstream. And right now, our listeners can save even more with an additional interest rate discount on top of Lightstream's already low rates. But the only way to get this discount is to go to lightstream.com slash Westwing. That's L-I-G-H-T-S-T-R-E-A-M dot com slash West Wing. This is subject to credit approval. Rate includes 0.5% auto pay discount. Terms and conditions apply and offers are subject to change without notice. Visit lightstream.com for more information. And now back to the show. Not only is this a very Clintonian plan for compromise, but the actual Social Security plan presented in this episode, to the degree that we lay it out, was uh, spoon-fed to me by Gene Sperling, who was a consultant to the show. I know he's been a guest on the podcast already, and really did work on this probably 130 hours a week under Bill Clinton, really right before he came to the show. So this is absolutely the thinking of the Clinton White House on Social Security reform. And it's a funny thing because... There was some debate in the writer's room over what the plan should be. 
And um, I'm embarrassed to say that I'm just not steeped enough in the details, but there was a single line, I guess, when they're hammering out the compromise at the end, where some senator says, If I can tell them that you'll settle for small optional private accounts on top of Social Security and raise the... I remember that Lawrence O'Donnell, who I love and just had dinner with, he didn't think the savings accounts should be on top of. He thought that they should be replacing a portion of. And uh, it got, so, you know, and it was all very collegial, but it got so heated at one point that just by random chance, we hadn't cast that part yet. And he read that senator's role at the read-through and he changed the dialogue <laughs> to reflect the plan that he thought it should be. Yeah, I mean, it was just, and actually I say this as a great thing about him and about the show, which is that not only were we a writer's room and a show where you could do a storyline like this, but we were fighting tooth and nail to the last shot of the episode over the details of the plan within the show. Oh, that's great. That's a terrific anecdote. It's that kind of passion behind and in front of the camera that, that makes the show what it is. I love that. Yeah, it's really, it's funny because there's a lot of nerdiness inherent in this, you know, and we tried to keep it as sort of breezy as we could. And, and, and there's no question that uh, the full original script, which I have here, which I could share with your listeners if you want, I think there's a good deal more of these Rena scenes and of these Ryan scenes trying to explain, you know, some of the nuances and, you know, obviously some of that had to be trimmed and some of it probably just should have been trimmed because, you know, maybe it was too much. But there was an element of let's do, let's try to teach people a few things, potentially. There's one thing that I wanted to highlight, which was that President Clinton and Newt Gingrich actually did have a secret compromise that they had crafted on Social Security and a number of other things. I'll put a link to this on the uh, on our website, but there's an excerpt of a book. The book is called The Pact, Bill Clinton, Newt Gingrich, and the Rivalry that Defined a Generation by Stephen Gillen. Interesting. And, um, there's an excerpt of it that was printed in U.S. News and World Report, and it tells the story of how the two of them, behind closed doors, had this bipartisan compromise on where they could cut things down in Social Security to try and uh, make it palatable for both the you know the Democrats and the Republicans, and and they actually got there. They were going to do it. The, the meet they met in October, and it was supposed to be announced in January, but then the Monica Lewinsky stuff came out and suddenly the president was so toxic and everything got ripped apart that Newt Gingrich, you know, had to go on the attack with the rest of the Republicans. And this plan that they had made was the um, casualty of that. Well, you know, it's a funny thing because when I was watching this episode a couple days ago, I thought to myself, you know, not even as a critique of the episode, but I was, you know, watching some of the conversation between Bartlett and Leo and Bartlett and Toby about legacy and thinking, well, is it unseemly? You know, when you see a president, when you see Bartlett, who we love and who's our hero in this show, among other heroes, you know, when you see him kind of wondering about his role in history, is that vanity? Is that narcissism? And mm -hmm. what was great about the Clinton-Gingrich era, and people think of Gingrich as a demonic figure, and in some ways he is. In some ways he's the founding father of the polarization that we see today. But he also was obsessed with his role in history. And he also, the minute he got elected House Speaker, saw himself as a grand historical figure, which was nuts, but it worked because he thought beyond his, the Republican conference in the House. He actually thought, we sh I should be making deals with the president to do grand things. And ultimately, his speakership ended because too many of the hardliners, under the leadership of the ultimate hardliner originally, thought he was too much of a dealmaker. 
But sort of vanity with an eye toward history is actually the father of compromise a lot of the time. Huh. Well said. Um, one, of the, one of the things that intrigues me about the episode is the fragility and the high stakes nature of being seen publicly as even contemplating compromise. One of the things that Nancy Altman said to me was that if that deal had gone through with President Clinton and Newt Gingrich at the time, there would have been an, a heavy political toll to pay. Yeah. Polk in this episode says, you know, how about the arrogance of trying to reform a $400 billion program by manhandling senators behind closed doors with no public debate, without organized labor, without the AARP? And um, she, she wrote to me in an email something that I thought was great, because she saw this compromise actually as being a failure on everyone's part, because mm. social, cutting Social Security, the thing that Toby is, is suggesting, you know, that, that they have to cut deeper, she said that cutting it all is really kind of a failure of this uh, very efficient government program. Right. I love this thing that she wrote to me in an email. I'm going to read it. She wrote, Valuing compromise and bipartisanship for themselves improperly, I believe, elevates process over substance. It seems to me that there are times for compromise and there are times to stand firm. If a fire is raging and one person wants to throw water on it and the other oil, they should not compromise and throw half water and half oil. That's a brilliant quote. I love that quote. It's an interesting thing because, you know, I worked on Capitol Hill for a couple of years before I worked in the Clinton White House. I worked for Dick Gephardt, who was the leader of the House Democrats at the time, and who you would have seen as hard left on entitlements, meaning he, he basically saw somebody like Clinton as being completely irresponsible with something that is a lifeline to like the working class and the middle class, right? And, and in his view, it's probably quite similar to Nancy Altman's, his view was that, you know, editorial pages love writing that we need some pain here. We have to tighten our belts and we have to like mm. cut, raise the retirement age. But if you're carrying, as uh, Kate Burton's character says in the episode, if you're one of these people whose body is going to wear out by the time you're 65 years old from a life of hard labor, then what looks good on a spreadsheet to a bunch of bean counters in Washington is, is total nonsense. You know, Clinton was obviously more a, a, a moderate on that issue and, you know, looking to make compromises. But I totally... I probably re realistically myself come down closer to the Gephardt view of it. And there, there's also a view that with Social Security, it's always been kind of pay as you go. People used to say in, in really apocalyptic terms, you know, the trust fund, Social Security trust fund will go broke by whatever the year was. But uh, Gephardt always used to point out that there's no time in its history that it was solvent for the next hundred years. You know, it, you're always having to fix it and fund it and adjust it based on demographics. So I do see both sides there. I wanted to mention one of my favorite lines um, early in the episode, one of my favorite lines of this episode that you wrote. The president says, Social Security is the third rail of American politics. Touch it and you die. It's because the third rail is where all the power is. That's so good. Thank you. It's it's uh, has the virtue of being true. <laughs> and then uh, soon after that, another one of my favorite lines in the episode comes from CJ. When they're talking about the fact that it's a slow news day, she says, no is very, very bad news. If we're not running offense, we're running defense. And if we're playing defense, then there's some clever sports analogy that explains what happens then. We're screwed. That'll do. <laughs> well, you know, written by somebody, myself, who actually knows no sports analogies. So <laughs> it was very, probably there was the intention to find one that just never happened. I think it's so much better. If we're going to play the favorite line game, then I will too. Um, yeah. First of all, I like the just very clever framework altogether that as a result of this close hold approach between the president and Toby, there 
is a situation where our heroes are simultaneously, on one hand, reaching out to Gaines and trying to work with him, and Josh and Will are attacking him. Yeah. And it leads to a great moment where Gaines says, Either you're lying. The left hand doesn't know what the far left hand is doing. <laughs> yes, that's a stolen line. That was actually uh, that was actually a line that Reagan used to, uh, or no, I think Reagan made it as a joke about, I think about the Republican Party. Somebody, I believe it was Reagan, had some line about the, the right hand doesn't know what the far right hand is doing. So I can't take complete credit there. I just repurposed it. Hey, great writers steal outright. Well, it's true. And another line that I love, that I stole, but I believe I asked permission to steal from the columnist Michael Kinsley, who I barely knew, but he was such a funny, interesting writer on policy issues. A few times I used bits of things he had written on the West Wing, and I would email him and say, may I steal this line? And he wrote me back once, yes, if you send me VHS tapes of the show, because my wife is a fan, but she misses it a lot. So, so I did do that. Is he still around? Kinsley's still around, absolutely, absolutely. He, he, I think he just, yeah, I think he wrote a book not long ago, but he was in his kind of heydays of calmness around this time, and I'm pretty sure it was his line about, you know, more, this was this very widely cited statistic that like more people under the age of 25 or something think that they'll see a UFO than a social security check, and he, I believe, was the one who wrote, but, you know, uh, the fact we ought to be concerned about is how many of them think they'll see a UFO. I thought that was great and, and, and promptly made it my own. Michael Kinsley, by the way, uh, has Parkinson's, and I think that might be part of why yeah. I haven't seen that much. Yeah, but, he, but I, saw him, I saw him on Charlie Rose, something that I won't be saying very often so in the future. What happened to that guy? Yeah. I, <laughs> <laughs> when you were in the White House, did you ever find that there were these kinds of um, internal divisions where people were actually working against each other? on different sides of an issue, you know, because of a lack of communication, they were actually at odds with the other's goals? Yes, all the time. But even beyond that, and it's not because people weren't collegial, as ultimately Josh and, and Toby are in the episode. You know, it may come off as a little brittle in the earlier scenes, but this was the debate all the time when I worked on Capitol Hill and in the White House, which is basically like, do you want a deal on an issue or do you want to use the issue to run on? And there were many times, and you know, it's funny because one of the first things I contributed to the West Wing when I joined the show in season three was a little lecture that Bruno, Bruno uh, gives, gives yeah. to Bartlett about basically why a deal on tobacco was a stupid thing. You don't want the money. You want the issue. Should have waited until the fall when the bell rings, and then we hammer them with it. And Comback, Lita, Ross, O'Rourke, Stevens, whoever gets the nomination has it hanging around their necks that nicotine pushes. Plus you get the money. The sooner you get, I know what I'm talking about, and I'm on your side, the sooner your world gets better. Of course you got the money. I'm amazed you didn't send it to you with candy and a stripper. Pennsylvania, Michigan, Ohio, three swing states you could have brought over with that thing. That's an election. When I was working for Dick Gephardt, even, you know, he would be, as the leader of the House Democrats, the one tasked with trying to decide, do we want a big compromise on this issue? Do we want to make a deal or do we need this issue? 
You had the Gene Sperlings in the Clinton White House and the Bruce Reeds who are policy people and who live to achieve things and to, you know, sort solve of... Solve problems. Yeah, to solve problems. And then you have the Rahm Emanuels and the George Stephanopoulos. And by the way, all of those guys are very close friends to this day, but who whose job... They probably would all say they think about all these things, but who are oriented more toward let's win seats, let's you know rack up the president's popularity rating so he can do even bigger things. And when do you fight and when do you deal? And it's a constant tension. That's what's so interesting about it to me, and that definitely informs this whole episode. You know, we, we often saw our White House, you know, in the first four seasons, wonderfully so, as a very you know warm family, and I think. Part of the attempt here in this episode is to sort of dramatize that, like, there's two very legitimate points of view. And in fact, there's three, you know, because Polk is sort of representing, as you say, Rishi, the arrogance of doing this, of a great leader doing something behind closed doors and thinking he knows what's good for the country, right, when the country doesn't get a say. Though if the country got a say, all the interest groups would go crazy and you'd never get anything done. And then there's the tension simply between the Josh point of view that like we need to win and only in winning do we sustain our power to do things. And then Toby's frustration that like, when do we get to the doing? Hmm. Although Josh and Toby do get together and finally work towards the ultimate solution in the, um, in the end of the episode, throughout the episode really before that, he's pretty much a dick in this episode. Josh. Um, Josh is, yeah. <laughs> even outside of this stuff, even just in his first meeting with Will, he's so miserly with his praise. You know, he, he <laughs> says, uh, hey, the vice president's speech to the D- Detroit Economic Club, it wasn't half bad. It's like, oh, thanks so much. <laughs> like, the best the best he gives him is, uh, you know, <laughs> like he's like, oh, this wonderful classic line, uh, which I was hearing for the first time in context, but I already knew it. That's how famous this line was i've i'd heard it before ever seeing this episode bob russell is so dull his secret service code name is bob russell even that which kills uh, josh says, that's not bad <laughs> I, I think you can see on my exit too that will is like yeah whatever thanks for the he kind of yeah. gets mad when he says that like okay yeah well you know it's i love those josh will scenes and i think these guys have a great back and forth, you know, and, and I even remember the table read of this episode and how well those scenes, how fun those scenes were to hear. But I think that it's funny, you're right about, I think you're right about Josh. In my mind, it may be a failing of the writing, but in my, I didn't, that wasn't how I intended it. And even in the Josh Will scenes, I think my intention, which, and again, it's not to say I wrote it properly, but my intention was these are two pros Will is aware of Russell's flaws. They're two professionals and colleagues. And like, so it's sort of like they can both go in there like clinicians and even a great joke, they're going to recognize it the way a pro would recognize it as opposed to a guy in the third row at, you know, the Laugh Factory. But, you know, I I think the way it all plays, you're absolutely right. Also, to some extent, no matter how you write it with Brad Whitford playing the role, he's going to come off like a (laughs) dick. (laughs) <laughs> I did. There's only I wrote, so much you can do as a writer, Eli. Well, I was thinking I that would, uh, you know, we love Brad. This is he's our, he's our buddy. <laughs> between between him, you know, there's it's really there's that moment where he where he's egging Will on, and he hands him the phone. He's like, all these reporters with nothing to talk about, and he's he's like kind of giving him the 
peer pressure like he's pushing him with like a drug dealer to be like take it everybody else is doing it <laughs> he's got that and then he's trying to make you know coerce donna into doing this <laughs> this thing that she's against to spy on her her colleague and I, I thought yeah you can really see why bradley whitford besides playing the beloved josh lyman has also been cast as a slimy bad guy so well often. it's funny because brad who you know obviously was all of our close friend and you know, he's such a great actor and he's so great in this role as Josh. But I became aware later on that early in his career, he was kind of a jerk in all these things. You know, yeah. uh, Adventures yeah, in Babysitting, Happy Revenge of the Nerds 2, Happy Billy Madison, Billy, Billy Madison. Madison. Happy Madison, I guess, is Sandler's company or something. But then he, I think the West Wing sort of retyped him as a great guy character and he did a lot of those roles. But now with Get he's Out. Back. And yeah, bad bad Brad is back. He's back to what comes naturally. <laughs> <That's>, <laughs> uh, it is great, but but both in this episode and like in Get Out, you know, it seems like he's your friend, but he's really trying to do something. Well, in the certainly in the case of Donna, he's trying to get you to do something that is not so great. Well, that's true. In that moment, that's absolutely true. And I, I think the other thing that I maybe was trying to get at here was that Josh and Toby should have been working together from the start. I mean, maybe it wouldn't have worked out, but only when they get together, the two of them as two halves of a whole actually are the ones who get it done. Yeah. Normally in TV shows and in movies, I get very annoyed by a plot device where if two characters could simply communicate, get on the same page, the problem would be solved immediately. Right. And it's only a matter of a lack of communication. But that doesn't happen here because it is actually part of the... The close hold is the yeah. part of the, the right. entire story. Yeah. The whole plot can only happen without telling um, everyone That's else. Right. And I thought that was really wonderfully established and, and avoided that entirely. Right. And it's an order that comes down from the president. And, and because of this very real world thing, which Nancy Altman was talking to you about, if you were spotted at a restaurant and overheard trying to make a deal on Social Security, that's enough to write the ad copy right there, you know? Yeah, yeah. Well, this leads me to ask, I'm going to challenge you, Eli. If Toby, his marching order is to operate sub rosa, why does he approach Gaines in person outside? <laughs> why didn't he pick up the phone? Well, that's true. Maybe he should have done that. I think I was almost imagining this is not a guy who, you know, this is a big Republican senator and he hates you know, Jed Bartlett, and that's probably a, a phone call that doesn't get taken. But in your in your defense in, in, against me, I, that's not a point that's ever made. <laughs> and in my defense, you, you had limited real estate. Well, this is true. No, but also I, I probably n needed it to be something that was then seen, you know, like it kind of gets out. So I, I needed to uh, punch a hole in my own Toby logic from the start. One of the things that I really like about this whole close hold aspect of the story is that I think for the first time we've seen what previously would have been unthinkable, the idea that President Bartlett would circumvent Leo, his, his absolute right-hand man. And as a result, I really like the Leo that we see in this episode. It's, it's a rare uh, episode where we don't get a little bit of a sparkle in John Spencer's eye and a little bit of a smile at some point. But Leo is pissed and yeah. having none of it. And I, I like that. And I think that, I, I hope this is clear to fans of the show, maybe it isn't, but there's a lot of love for Leo in this, in that I think Bartlett is saying to Toby, you alone can go do this. No one else is connected to it. I get to throw you overboard at the end of the day if this doesn't work. 
And implicit in that is if my chief of staff is brought in on it, then it's actually a White House dictate, you know, and, and, and then we really can be in a lot of trouble. But it's a funny thing because I do remember that um, John Wells always had a lot to say about Leo, and he did in this episode in particular, because John, who, you know, has been running giant hit TV shows since he was 11 years old, probably, you know, he really understands what it is to be a boss and a leader and the burdens of that. And I always remember in these episodes, these kinds of episodes, he would always have some perspective or thought or line from Leo. Like he seemed to have a real intuitive understanding of that role. The other thing that I I want to point out, and I'm going to still try to find it. I looked for it yesterday and couldn't find it in case you guys were interested in sharing it, is that uh, I wrote Toby's resignation letter. We were filming the episode and Richard and I were talking and I said, why don't I write a real letter and you can sort of have a real letter? Because he's such an intense actor and, you know, always deep diving into this. And I, I wrote it and I don't remember what was in it. Uh, right now, but I know they don't have the actual document. You know, I have a hard copy of it somewhere in a box, but I've been looking on computers to see if I have it because I remember being moved when I wrote it, you know, (laughs) not like by my greatness or something, but like, oh my God, this is, you know, it just felt like here's this guy who loves the president and loves this job and basically what an honor it was to serve you kind of thing. And I wrote this letter and I gave it to Richard and I said, I think this is the best writing in this episode. (laughs) <laughs> and he read it, and he said, yeah, you're right. Oh, Eli, if you, you get have, it. You have to find it. I want to find it. You have to find it, and then we have to get Richard to read it for this episode. Oh, that would be great. Oh. Let me try to find it. I'll bet I could find it in a box in the shed yeah, of my old house, a... and I would go look for it. But uh, let me see if I have just a, a digital copy somewhere, which I should have. We've got to do the, the West Wing episode of Hoarders and just have cameras come over to your place. Oh, my God. I mean, I have, you know, I, now, now all those West Wing, they've probably got 10 boxes stuffed with documents, and they're all in the shed behind my old house, which I'm renting out. But, uh, yeah, I definitely win that, uh, whatever oh, prize they that. give on that I show. think we have a week. Okay, I'll move heaven and uh, earth, see what I can do. Awesome. Clear your calendar, Eli. So the scene when Rena comes in and tells Toby while he's in the conversation with Leo that the president wants him yeah. in the residence and, and not Leo, the thunderstruck yeah. look of Leo in that yeah. moment is so great. Um, as he starts to, it starts to dawn on him, you know, he, he's like, oh, Josh is spewing conspiracy theories, right. but then he right. realizes that they're, they're right. true and, and he's been outmaneuvered and that moment of realization is really wonderful. I wrote down Josh's paranoia transfers to Leo and you can see the exact moment. Uh, <laughs> yeah. 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 Toby, uh, like Josh Lyman said to Amy, you went over my head and you did it behind my back. <laughs> so Quite true. Contortionist, am I? So true. Okay. Let's talk for a second about casting in this episode first of all i'm starting to realize that everyone who's been on scandal was first on the west wing this is very true Um, there is no question that uh shonda rhimes is a fan of the west wing yeah but yeah vice president sally langston from scandal yeah and she's great in this and uh i remember actually because isn't she josh a kind of a great stage actor from new york yeah she is incredible she is one of the greats. she's one of five people to have been nominated for two tonys in the same season in different categories yeah best actress i guess tony for playing hedda gabler and then in the same season was nominated as a feature actress in the revival of the wow. elephant man 
This wow. is in 2002. Well, that's not long before this. I mean, what I do remember about the shooting of this episode, I don't know, Josh, if you remember this, well, you, of course, you would just know this. She showed up and was like friends already with the whole West Wing cast. Like she knew a lot of the cast from New York theater. So that was kind of fun to see. Yeah. She is a hoot. She is just a fantastic actor and just one of the great, interesting, funny, easy people to work with. She's a delight. Yeah, my memory of her was, was very positive. We also have Joaquim de Almeida as uh, Carlos Carrillo from the uh, Argentinian consulate. And people may also recognize him as, you know, the bad guy in Fast Five and the bad guy in Desperado and the bad guy in uh, Fear and Present Danger. <laughs> but here he plays the, uh, he has a brief but memorable exchange with uh, CJ where he manages to completely... Um, Disarm her? Uh, yes, <laughs> where he completely uh, disarms her. Uh, arouse and, uh, her. <laughs> and uh, we get this, uh, you know, where she's not paying attention. And then suddenly she looks up and she just, she, she sort of comes undone. And I wanted to read this quote from Norman Jewison, who is the brilliant director of In the Heat of the Night and Fiddler on the Roof and Moonstruck. And she's a great stuff. superstar. She's oh, a great wow. superstar. He cast Joaquim de Almeida in... Um, in a movie called Only You, a Marissa Tomei, Robert Downey Jr. movie that he made. Here's a quote from him. Howard Foyer, the casting director, said, Joaquim's not that tall. He's not that handsome. And he was supposed to be playing this sort yeah. of like Italian lover character. And Norman Jewison said, but listen to his voice. There's a macho-ness, especially when he lowers it, whispers, leans across the table, and pours you another glass of wine. He can be extremely intimate with his voice. And I felt like that was the case here. I mean, really, it's the intimacy in that scene is so much because of how he plays it vocally. Yeah. As I sort of rewatched it and thought about it after all these years, there's a real true uh, absurdity to the whole CJ storyline. And, you know, it kind <laughs> of, you know, there's a cabbage on her desk and she, people think she wants to adopt a child. And I mostly look at that and think, what was I thinking? But, uh, <laughs> but, but it's, a, it, it's funny because, you know, that's a very real concept in politics, the, the, the notion that, you know, you're always trying to put out sort of hard news coming out of the White House so that the White House press corps isn't left to their own mischievous devices. There was a day, and I'm sure it was a, one of the slower news days, in the Clinton White House where somebody got a rumor from somewhere that the Clintons were thinking of adopting a child. So it's funny, all these writers on the show brand new people joining the show for the first time, kept pitching to Aaron, well, you know, CJ is, you know, she's kind of getting into her 30s, and, you know, she's, we see in, the, in her first scene in the pilot, she's trying to meet a guy at the gym, and, you know, is she worried about her biological clock, and is it time for her to, and Aaron couldn't have been less interested, and said somewhere, I think even in just in an interview that I read, that basically, like, these characters live in a world they construct, like, they don't want to have a baby. They don't want to, they want to be doing this. They want to be in this White House serving this president. And so I thought I would write the response to those pitches as a storyline, which is that through the weirdness of there's nothing else to write about and this change in adoption law, somehow, you know, people think the Bartlett's want to adopt a baby and it kind of, then this, she's able to fool this reporter into thinking she wants to have a baby, all leading to her basically saying, I'm completely happy with my life. So anyway. That's the genesis of that. And in the middle, she's aroused by cabbage-bearing Argentine ambassador with a sultry voice. You, you almost have her saying, he wanted to toss my salad, which would have been really, really hard. For a second, I thought you were yeah. getting there. Yeah, it's, it's, I I'm not sure I, I knew that think, phrase uh, then, but it definitely crossed my mind when I rewatched the episode. <laughs> yeah, she says, 
Oh, it's just some guy at the Argentine embassy who apparently wants to make me a salad. Huh. Yes, exactly. Uh, that is ooh, a good borderline. Idea. It was not meant at the time. That was not intended as euphemistic of anything. This is a pre-urban dictionary. Exactly right. I was wondering if you had a little shout out to Aaron in the Josh Will scene. I think the first Josh Will scene. Josh says, "Telling people you're dull just removes all doubt." Russell I was wondering if that was some sort of hat tip to Aaron, who wrote a play called "Removing All Doubt." Oh, as a reference to the uh, to the line, "Better to remain silent and be thought a fool than to open your mouth and remove all doubt." Oh, interesting. Attributed variously to Mark Twain and Abraham Lincoln. It wasn't. I'll say on one hand that when I worked for Al Gore, who was like Bob Russell, sometimes you know seen as kind of stiff and wooden and whatever, we used to always gather and write and solicit jokes to open his speeches. And one thing that he always ruled out as a category of joke, you know, even though we would sometimes get pitches on this from people, were jokes about how boring the speech he was about to give was going to be because he, he kind of explained to me that it's going to plant that idea in their head and then they will think it's dull. He'd done a lot of uh, thinking about kind of uh, self-deprecating humor and, and what worked and what didn't. The joke about Bob Russell's codename, Secret Service codename is uh, Bob Russell, that is a lift from Al Gore, right? Absolutely, yes. That is a joke that Al Gore used to tell about himself, yeah. And did he come up with that joke or did you write that for him? I didn't write that joke for him. It was a joke that predated my time working for him and I'm pretty sure that it appeared in a column uh, written by Al Hunt and that it was just a line he wrote, you know, Al Gore, so, you know, boring, his Secret Service code name might as well be Al Gore. And before I worked for Al Gore, it just ended up in his, his own speeches. <laughs> and it, and, and there, were, there, there was a whole, Gore used to do a whole run of what he would call stiff jokes. And it, it included, you know, uh, Al Gore is so stiff, you know, uh, racks by their suits off him. There were a whole bunch of them, and it, it would end with Gore saying, and every time I hear another one of these stiff jokes, I, you know, I, I, I have the same reaction. Very funny, Tipper, <laughs> his wife. So anyway, you good. know, it's, yeah. it's, I will say uh, some of them are genuinely funny, but you have a lower bar as a constitutional officer. It's, uh, <laughs> every every comedy club should be packed with them we'd all be rolling on the floor. But I do think the distinction is interesting and important, you know, that he, it's not that he strayed away from self-deprecating jokes about his stiffness, but he was keen not to have them about the speeches that he was delivering. Yes, no, but, but you know, it's an interesting thing because, so when I started working for Gore, which was in 1997, the stiff jokes were kind of the meat and potatoes of the way he would warm up an audience, I guess, before launching into his you know, speech on, you know, tort reform or whatever it was about. He moved away from them. And actually for a number of reasons. One was that maybe people don't remember this. And I'm sure very few people are thinking deep thoughts about the trajectory of the Al Gore campaign for president. But when he was running for president and he was giving five speeches a day and kind of had developed a stump speech that he could just give without a prepared text or anything, he could be great. I mean, he could be loose. He could be funny. And at a certain point, Weirdly enough, I remember having a conversation at the time with Jay Leno about this. I used to be sort of the conduit between the Gore office and, and, and a lot of these late night shows if he ever went on them. And I remember Leno saying to me, you know, that every night on The Tonight Show, he felt like he had a focus group about politics because he could tell what people laughed at and what they believed. And he said that the Al Gore is stiff and boring stuff has stopped working well because Gore was for probably a period of months 
you know, perceived on the trail and in news coverage to be looser and to be more dynamic. There was a law review article at Clinton's second inaugural. Al Gore, the vice president, is sworn in first. And then I think Jesse Norman sang America the Beautiful or something. And um, she went long. And so it was later than 12.01 p.m. when Bill Clinton was actually sworn in. So there was a, a, a legal scholar who wrote an article claiming that Al Gore had been president for five minutes <laughs> because he'd been sworn in already and Clinton hadn't yet and his term had expired. So Gore used to do a riff about what he called the five-minute presidency, where he would explain this concept and then say, and may I say, it was a great five minutes for me and for America. And he would do this whole thing, <laughs> you know, ending with how his presidential library is like a shoebox in Nashville or something. Uh, so these were the riffs that he did when I started working for him. Uh, and then we slowly buried them and did other things. I love this line from the president towards the end. You can't owe yourself a legacy. You think there's a room at the Smithsonian for guys who never even tried? You know, even the idea of a shoebox-sized presidential library. Yeah. It's a great uh, motivator. There isn't a ton of President Bartlett in this episode, yeah. but every one of his scenes uh, has, they're really dense. And I think we get a lot of insight into him and um, it's really wonderful. Oh, thank you for that. I worked really in a second term White House. I was in the last few months of Clinton's first term, you know, and, but just getting my feet wet. And so much of what's in this was really my experience of a second term. And, and what you're mentioning, Rishi, is this idea that like, well, you're trained as a politician and you're trained to preserve power, to preserve your poll numbers, to preserve the sort of uh, battering rams that are the, the bread and butter of politics. And then you enter this one moment in the twilight of your career when actually none of that is in your interest anymore. But it may still be in the interest of everybody below you and everybody running, you know, on your party brand. And it's a real tension, but it's, politically speaking, it's mortality. It's Bartlett looking at his own mortality and realizing, like, you don't realize it until you get up there that this is ending. And what was it all for? And it's, it's the deepest thing, I think, in politics. Hmm. Do you miss it? Politics? Like working in it? I do, actually. Not that I don't think episodic television is very, very important to the world. No. I loved my time in politics, and, and I'm still immersed in it in a lot of ways. I was in Washington for seven years, and it felt like a lifetime. And it, it kind of, I think I still have a, a version of PTSD about it which is to say the hours are so brutal. It was a rough, crazy life with more extraordinary experiences in one day than I probably have in a year now. And it was amazing and I wouldn't trade it, but they really are like dog years. I don't know that I could do it again. I love it and it'll always be part of who I am. But I will say that I feel like a lot of these stories on the West Wing in the Aaron era and, and in the post-Aaron era were a form of therapy for me without even realizing it, you know, getting out some of these conflicts and also being able to tell some of the weird things that happened to me and change the endings to happy ones, uh, <laughs> because that isn't how it usually went down. Everybody should have a kind of an all-consuming, sort of mind-blowing job and then work on a TV show about that exact job. <laughs> yeah, it's pretty interesting. I never really I thought about it that way, the therapeutic nature of, of you walked into just the right post-government job. Oh my God, and I mean, to be able to little things that you that you read or heard or that people said to you, you know, you'd just be sitting there, I would be sitting there writing a scene for the West Wing and just remember, oh, 
you know, this person said this to me in the hallway of the West Wing. You know, it just things would come back to you. Not to mention you'd be on the set and only the Roosevelt Room in the Oval Office. But those two rooms on the set of the show looked enough like the real rooms that you sometimes would think, where am I right now? And I, I don't know if we've ever talked about it. I think it was during season four that Al Gore came to the set to film a sketch for Saturday Night Live with the cast of the show. And the sketch, the premise of the sketch was Al Gore coming to visit the set of the TV show, The West Wing. And he walks into the Oval Office, is blown away by how much it looks like the real one. And then they can't get him to leave. And, um, <laughs> and I brought him into the fake Oval Office and he actually was completely blown away. It was sort of, the sketch was sort of happening. It was just, <laughs> it was a weird time. <laughs> In the best That's way. That's great. This is a good, um, this is good reinforcement for our idea that after we finish this podcast, we're just going to start from the beginning again, and uh, this time we'll we won't make all the mistakes that we made along the way. <laughs> or I think we'll, we'll do a revisionist here's, here's version what I think of the Western We should Weekly. really do is I think when the podcast is over, the three of us just create a TV show about the podcast. <laughs> I'm in. No one will watch which it, but I will, I'm, I'm which down. I will read for and not be cast in. No. <laughs> <laughs> all parts will be played by the original. Um, Nick Kroll, they my wrong. <laughs> Nick Kroll and Cal Penn are the West Wing. Oh my God, <laughs> Cal Penn! I love Cal Penn. <laughs> well, until that happens, um, we'll be back next week. Eli, thank you so much for joining us. It's a pleasure, as always, to talk to you. Uh, as all mine in real life and even on Skype like this. And you've you've earned another uh, five thousand West Wing weekly frequent flyer miles. <laughs> People should follow Eli on Twitter. It's at Eli Addy. Exactly right. That's easy. E-L-I-A-T-T-I-E. On Instagram, Eli is at Eli.Addy. You can follow this podcast, if you don't already, on Twitter at West Wing Weekly and on Instagram at The West Wing Weekly. And uh, let us know what you thought of this episode. You can weigh in at thewestwingweekly.com. We'll put up some resources. We're going to get some bonus materials from Eli. We'll have a link to Nancy Altman's new book, The Truth About Social Security. If you want to follow Social Security Works on Twitter, they're at SSWorks. And, um, you know, their mission is to fight re the retirement income crisis by protecting and expanding Social Security. So if you want to learn more about that, follow her. Thanks, as always, to Zach McNeese and Margaret Miller, without whom we could not make this podcast. I will also put up a link to Margaret's wonderful audio trailer and uh, more about her book that she co-wrote. The West Wing Weekly is a proud member of Radiotopia, a selection of fine, fine podcasts about which you can find out more at radiotopia.fm. And get yourself a lapel pin. Go to thewestwingweekly.com slash merch. That's right. Okay. Okay. What's next? If you've been enjoying the West Wing Weekly, but you're looking for another podcast to add to your rotation, may we suggest another Radiotopia podcast, the award-winning Radio Diaries. Radio Diaries tells extraordinary stories of ordinary life. For more than 20 years, they've been giving people tape recorders and working with them to report on their own lives and histories. And this summer, they have a brand new series on the podcast called Last Witness, portraits of the last surviving witnesses to important moments in history. What a fascinating idea. There's the story of 95-year-old Russell Gockenbach, who flew as a navigator on the mission to bomb Hiroshima, Japan in 1945. And then there's the story of Olivia Hooker, the last survivor of the Tulsa race riots of 1921. She was only six years old when white mobs destroyed Greenwood, a middle-class black neighborhood. Here's an excerpt from that episode. 
I guess the most shocking thing was seeing people to whom you had never done anything to irritate, who just took it upon themselves to destroy your property because they didn't want you to have those things and they were teaching you a lesson. Those were all new ideas to me. But uh, I guess that's part of the growing up process. Check out the Last Witness series on the Radio Diaries podcast. You can go to radiodiaries.org to subscribe, or subscribe wherever you subscribe to this podcast. Radiotopia. Radiotopia.